You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your host, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. to this episode 144 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs, a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas. With me this morning, like most of the rest of them, is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing well, David. I'm busy, to be sure, and getting tired here towards the end of the week, but doing well nonetheless. Good to hear. Good to hear. Also with us is Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How's your morning, Michael? It's good. How, how about you, David? Um, it's, it's, it's early. I love, I love getting to my office before there's anyone else in the building, and you can still hear crickets, and the Wi-Fi is good. I agree. It's the, <laughs> the, one, the one time of day my building is quiet. <laughs> mm-hmm. As the as the I students can... as, the, as the students who stayed up playing video games until three thirty sleep through their early classes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yay! All right. Well, uh, we're not doing uh, listener letters, so if you're if you're one of those who's been uh, plundering through our epic backlog, um, and are just, and so uh, your your expectations in the present are shaped by expectations from the past, uh, we aren't reading letters. Uh, at the beginning anymore, we have special episodes for that, which means if without further ado, we can get at the subject, right? Get it. All right. So all the further ado out of the way. <laughs> Our topic this week is allegory. Uh, allegory as uh, a literary genre um, or a literary way of approaching a text. Uh, this is birthed from uh, a blog post, which Michael Farmer put up, uh, how long ago was that, Michael? Uh, a month ago, something like that? August August 7th, so yeah, more than a month ago. Okay. Wow, man, this semester's just flying. It really is. Well, before we uh, delve into Michael's position qua allegory, we'll let Nathan define it. So what is an allegory? Well, first of all, the phrase that you just used uh, is telling. Uh, it is both a literary genre in its own right, and it's also a mode of reading uh, texts of various sorts. So 
right from the outset, uh, I'm going to play Wittgenstein here and say that allegory functions differently depending on what role it is playing within the linguistic system. Uh, So as a literary genre, uh, allegory, the way that I teach it to my students, which is often where I start these conversations, is a relationship between relationships. Uh, So the example that I tend to pull from is the parable of the sower. Uh, Within the story proper, you've got the relationship between the sower, the seed, the various types of soil, uh, the thorns, the birds, the crops, so on and so forth. Those things are used to illuminate and to clarify relationships between Jesus himself, the message he preaches, those who follow him, those who oppose him, those who follow him for a bit but then run off, so on and so forth. Now, an allegory is, you know, I would say a species within the genre that I would call analogy. Uh, Mm -hmm. Analogy is any relationship between relationships. Allegory I would define as an analogy that has a narrative cast to it. And it's also related to uh, fables and parables, uh, two other genres that tend to have that sort of, um, and I'm going to define one technical term with another one here, so forgive me for that, Uh, but they tend to have sort of a mythological cast to them. In other words, you'll have elements that have powers that those elements normally don't have in everyday experience. So you have talking animals, you have crops that miraculously grow 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Uh, you have those sorts of things. A, a parable, uh, and I realize I'm being very Heideggerian here, reaching back to the etymology and making more of it than a linguist with any uh, self-respect would make of it. Uh, <laughs> but a parable, I always relate it to the geometric concept of the parabola. Uh, it goes from one point in your coordinate system to another point, not via a straight line, but by curving around it. Uh, so a parable is a story that curves. So, you know, David, I mean, you, you and I both do, uh, medieval literature a fair bit. Uh, Mm -hmm. what would you add to that notion of allegory? Um, well, nothing that we probably won't be getting to, uh, (laughs) a a bit later on, but, um, just that, that it is a little bit difficult to pin down though. Mm -hmm. I will say that in, uh, that like the distinction between, you know, between allegory and where do fable or parable fit into that, um, uh, at least in some circles uh, that I've run in, um, allegory is kind of a hermeneutic devil term. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's and there's a kind of a, a, a vehement insistence that a parable is not an allegory. And I've right, right. And for instance, kn- I mean, the parable that the <laughs> prophet Nathan tells to King David in Second Samuel is not an allegory. Uh, all, all, well, and I mean, that leads into the second meaning of allegory, right? Because within the parable itself, uh, you know, there is a visitor who comes from foreign lands who wants to eat. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no character in the story of David and Bathsheba that, re- that corresponds to that traveler. But, right. and here's the cool thing, and I think it's a cool thing, Michael didn't think it's so cool, we're going to get to that later, is that later readers of Second Samuel allegorize the visitor from a distant land and make it uh, David's carnal desires and such. Uh, So the allegorical mode of reading takes a literary narrative and basically as an interpretive move brings it to bear on some other relationship between realities and turns it into an allegory uh, in places where the text itself doesn't give very strong hints that it intended to be an allegory in the first place. 
So the, 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 the form itself tempting to dig even deeper. Oh, sure, sure. And I mean, it's, a, it's always a dialectic, right? Because, I mean, you get the impulse to allegorize because you've read allegories uh, and right. the resistance to allegory narratives, I think, leads to a resistance to allegory as a genre. Uh, but as our listeners know, I, I can turn anything into a dialectic. It's one of my superpowers. So uh, <laughs> I'll just leave that there. All right. Uh, you know, when I was in youth group, which is the closest thing I came to seminary, um, <laughs> I, I, I was t- I was told that the difference between a parable and an allegory is that only one thing represents something in a parable. Is that accurate, Nathan? Um, I don't think it's nearly as clean cut as that. Because I mean, said, the parable I mean, you 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 talk about the the seed and the sower. Almost everything seems to represent something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I would say that that is an allegorical parable. I would say that the parable of the man who steals his neighbor's sheep is a non-allegorical parable. Until, although, until the early seed, church uh, gets its hold on it. Well, yeah, yeah, and you know those patristic writers, and for that matter, rabbinic writers. And again, I'll go back to my thesis that rabbinic and patristic writers are not as different as some people would lead you to think uh they would say all right let's take those elements in the parable that the prophet nathan tells and let's allegorize the bits that aren't immediately evident in the story of david and bathsheba so for instance the uh the many sheep that the one has uh you know you could allegorize those as you know the many wives of david or you could say it's many possessions in general the traveler that comes from a foreign land, you could say that, you know, that's simply not something that exists in the David and Bathsheba narrative. Or you could allegorize it and say it is the lust of the flesh that comes to visit David in a particularly intense moment. Hmm. Interesting. Well, before we delve more into rabbis and fathers and all the rest of Mm -hmm. that, uh, I, I need to hit the ball over into your side of the court there, Michael. Um, you have already staked a position on allegory, and I'm not going to speak for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, you know, I want to let you have the right to, to characterize it yourself. Um, so what's your take on allegory as, I guess, writing and reading or whichever you want to take on? Okay, so that blog post was being purposely provocative, Right, I'm I'm yeah. I'm I'm poking the the collective internet only to find out that the only person who took the bait was Charles Hackney, uh, <laughs> who will be you you'll be able to hear regularly on the Book of Nature podcast coming yes, very soon on uh, the Chris Radio Network. <laughs> anyway, awesome. so this comes about uh, because I I am writing this paper on nostalgia, and so I, I read this this book by Susan Stewart called On Longing, which opens not by talking about nostalgia or anything like it, but by talking about allegory and uh, the differences between allegory and realism. So I'm going to, I'm going to read you what she says, and then I'll talk about why I think it's wrong. Uh, Let's see. She says in allegory, the vision of the reader is larger than the vision of the text. The reader dreams to an excess to an overabundance to read an allegorical narration is to see beyond the relations of narration, character, desire to read allegory is to live in the future. The anticipation of closure beyond the closure of narrative. 
And then she, she refers to it as eschatological, and she says the eschatological vision of allegory makes the reader the producer of the text in the sense that closure can be achieved only through conversion. But the production of the 18th century novel is divided between the author and his reader, and the reader's production is subsidiary to and imitative of the author's work. And, and this seems so demonstrably false to me that I, I closed the book stepped away from nostalgia and thought for about half an hour about about why I thought this was so wrong and the related question of why I don't tend to like uh, allegories. And, and really what we're talking about here is allegories of a certain type because uh, mm. I, I – as as we're going to get to i'm sure that there are there are allegories that i think do do what i want literature to do and allegories i don't so my starting place for this is actually where i end the blog post with which is my my uh assumptions about what i want literature to do i won't be so grandiose as to say what literature is supposed to do because i think literature is supposed to do a lot of different things but when i read the things i take pleasure in have to do with um variety of interpretation which to me sounds like what susan stewart wants too right because she's talking about mm. giving power to the reader which is you know the the barthesian attitude the death of the author the birth mm. of the reader where i disagree with her is the idea that allegory allows us to do this at least allegory as a narrative form because to me it seems like allegory the the meaning is so baked in so car <laughs> carved into stone to mix my metaphors so so set that there's no room for the hermeneutical acrobatics that i enjoy uh as part of literary criticism and and so the the big bear of my post uh is john bunyan's pilgrim's progress which uh, is a is a book I have always hated that my students tend to <laughs> like, and uh, and so I teach because it allows us to have an interesting argument, uh, which I guess is which I guess is is indicative of my approach to <laughs> to literary criticism as well. Uh, but but if you've if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you know that all the characters have the names of the ideas they represent, and everything is completely laid out for you, telling you exactly what everything means. And I, I mean, at that point, why even tell it in a story? Is my feeling. If your allegory is that close of a one-to-one -one correspondence, why not just give a sermon? What what mm -hmm. possible advantage do we get from talking about the slough of despair instead of just talking about despair? It's it's not more of a concrete image. So I, I guess maybe a better way to think about this is writerly allegory versus readerly allegory. And, and in that sense, Pilgrim's Progress is very much a writerly allegory because it is – it is laid out in such a way that the writer determines the interpretation. What Nathan's talking about with the Midrashic tradition and the patristic tradition of allegorical interpretation of the Bible is much closer to a readerly interpretation, although those folks would probably um, tell you that, that those multiple interpretations are baked into the text just like uh, just like any other literal interpretation. But... Mm. Um, I, I think they're given hermeneutic freedom in a way that the reader of Pilgrim's Progress is not. I, I don't know how you could read Pilgrim's Progress and have any kind of interpretive freedom because the interpretation is so. So you you could you can imagine a a literary allegory, an allegory that's written as an allegory, but which is more welcoming to a reader as an as as a participant in it. Yes, I can. 
But my suspicion is the more welcoming it is to reader participation, the more or the the less successful it is as a straight allegory. And I know we're going to get to that in a later question, so I don't want to (laughs) scoop myself too much there. (laughs) Okay. Uh, All right. Well, we've already been uh, kind of poking in the direction of of this next question, Nathan, mm -hmm. Um, which it it seems to me pretty clear that we need some history under our belt in order to, to address this, because allegory is not just some kind of you know, naked phenomena, um, you know, it, it arises for particular reasons, particular writers choose at particular times to use it because of, uh, because of what it has been to them, um, because of its, its stature, um, in history. So middle ages is really when allegory, uh, is when allegory really flourishes the most. And that kind of continues being popular on into the early modern period. Mm-hmm. But the DNA of that flourishing is complicated. So if you can kind of unravel those strands for us, that'd be helpful. All right. Well, I'm actually going to start much older than the Middle Ages and kind of end in the Middle Ages. And, you know, at Excellent. that point, you can hand the baton over to Michael and he can take us beyond the Middle Ages. But uh, I want to start actually with uh, book one of the Iliad, which is a, a good place to start when you're talking about literature, I think. Uh, in book one of the Iliad, there is a moment where uh, Achilles and Agamemnon are about to come to blows uh, over the curse that has come upon the Greek camp because of an offense done to Apollo. It's all very complicated. You can read it in book one of the Iliad. It's great literature. Go read it. The point here is that in that moment when Achilles is about to draw his sword, Athena appears to him and presents a rhetorical argument against draw taking up arms against his hegemon his overlord uh right there uh in one of the you know classical early moments of western literature you have the figure of athena allegorically figuring wisdom uh in other words it is wiser for achilles not to take up arms against agamemnon although his own fighting spirit wants to a little bit later on uh in plato's dialogue the phaedrus Uh, You get a conversation, again, very early in that dialogue where Phaedrus asks Socrates if he believes that, you know, the legend of someone who jumped off a cliff and who was was carried away, pardon me, off of a cliff by uh, the god Boreas uh, was true or whether, as some contemporary intellectuals were saying, that that was simply an explanatory device for the fact that there were strong winds at that cliff. And she was carried off by the strong winds. Socrates, interestingly, uh, says that both of those readings are, you know, equally uninteresting to me. And I want to read this little (laughs) passage from uh, Stephanus number 230a. As I said just now, I investigate myself rather than these things to see whether I am, in fact, a creature of more complexity and savagery than Typhon or something tamer and more simpler with a naturally divine and non-Typhonic nature. Uh, so what Socrates does there is say, uh, you know, if you're taking these uh, old stories as explanations of natural phenomena, you're missing the real point, which is to say they are moments to ponder the complexities of human existence rather than how strong the winds are. Uh, Richard Dawkins, take note, please. Uh, now, as you move on, 
Uh, you get later dialogues of Plato, like the Republic, in which Socrates says, those who are mature can take those unsavory moments of the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, which would normally corrupt morals and, and tragedies, by the way, uh, and you can read them allegorically, but for the simple-minded, who tend to read these things as literal, it would be positively harmful to regard the gods as doing harm to human beings. But he seems to leave room, and I know I'm in a minority reading Plato as you know leaving room for literature is a good thing, but I don't mind being a, a loony fringe character. Um, <laughs> but I think he leaves room for allegory as a way for literature to be a positive good for the citizen of the good city. Now, the next step I want to take is into uh, Augustine's treatise uh, on education, in which he talks about scriptures themselves as sometimes appearing to be, let's say, unchristlike in their teachings. All right. And mm -hmm. the principle that he offers in the opening books of On Christian Doctrine is that uh, those parts of scripture which illuminate, which is to say, those parts which are most Jesus-y because Augustine is, a, is among many other things, a Christ-centered thinker. Uh, he mm -hmm. says that those things ought to illuminate those parts that seem unchristlike, and the mechanics of how that should be read is precisely as an allegory uh, for some sort of spiritual reality. All right. So now, mm -hmm. fast forward, uh, you know, give or take 800 years to Dante, uh, in his letter to Con Grande, he says that any text uh, which has any genuine wisdom to it, which is to say poetic and scriptural, is going to have at least four different levels of meaning. The literal, uh, which is, you know, relationships among characters and entities inside the text, self-contained. There's the allegorical, which, you know, points beyond itself to spiritual realities. There is the anagogical, uh, which points to a sort of eschatological, teleological, uh, the way that the world is heading. And then there is the moral, uh, which is, you know, what I would call a sort of existential psychological reading, describing realities within the soul of the reader. All right. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that is, first of all, way too fast a summary, and it's also way too long a summary at the same time. It's a contradiction, but they're both <laughs> deal with that. Uh, but, I mean, that's sort of the history that brings us up into... What a lot of folks, you know, encounter as, you know, sort of one of the high moments of allegory, uh, namely the 16th and 17th centuries in English literature. So that's where I'll kind of leave that. David, I, I know I, I hit high points. I left a ton out. What would you add before we move on? Just that I do, I, I do think it's it's important to uh, important to think about for for the purposes of this conversation that as you've as you've traced in this history that allegory in in some sense gains prominence primarily as a way of reading mm. um before it becomes a method of self-conscious composition yeah right in, in in christian europe um it's 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 because they had you know it's because readers had been taught that the biblical text is this complex um, and inspired text in which truth is not always just lying on the surface, but also interwoven at many levels. And mm -hmm. that, you know, you know, threads can be traced through in unexpected ways that uh, you see 
Christian writers, uh, in, in, a, uh, in a sense, taking up the challenge of trying to make something in that same, um, something with, with, with that approaches the same complexity that, that, uh, that can be read in ways they've, t- they've been taught to read, mm-hmm. which, uh, I, I, I find that, uh, I find that an, an interesting, uh, an, an interesting notion. They're, they're, they're taught how to read in a certain way. And then they move to write things that can be read in the way they, they, they've learned to read. But, but the irony to me there is when they do that, they end up often creating something that can only be read one or two different ways instead of four or 16 or 256 or however far you want to take this. <laughs> well, because they're single human or because they're human authors, they're not the divine right. author and so cannot fill a text with a plenitude. Right. And even among human <laughs> authors, I mean, I would argue that there are differences among authors in terms of, you know, their capacity for complexity, right? So, I mean, I would regard the Commedia of Dante as an explicitly allegorical text. I mean, you know, do, does Dante think that souls literally go to Ostia on the Mediterranean coast when they die before they go to purgatory. I hope not. Uh, but I mean, it's a lovely <laughs> allegorical location for souls to enter into that place where fresh water and salt water commingle as an mm-hmm. image for reflection on, you know, that transition from the life of the living to the life of those who are saved. Yeah. But but I I would say that the the divine, divine comedy I won't try to do the Italian you're going to get enough of me trying to pronounce French yeah next I, week. I, yeah I, I did kind of go Robert Harris on that didn't I that's okay no 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 <laughs> pretension is good um, I, I I would argue that the divine comedy is much richer than than many of the allegories that that are written during that that time period that that, oh, that, sure. that I, is a book that is almost as interpretable as the Bible yeah I will agree with you. But I would say that that is a function of the skill of the writer rather than a function of the genre. I would say, yeah, no, I'll agree with that. That that there are there are skillful writers within the genre. I don't want to blame everything on the genre. Maybe what I'm saying is that is a genre that tends to attract unskillful writers. Well, sure, sure. I mean, every genre has its temptations, you know. And I mean, the temptation of the allegory is to make the pieces fit too neatly. Right. And, 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 you know, one thing I go over in the post that I didn't say yet is that this is all kind of a self-condemnation for me as well, because when I was in high school, my, my temptation was to interpret everything, not just allegorically, but as a, a religious allegory. And, mm. and, 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 you know, this is the cause of such shame in my adult self that, that I may, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't, I don't disagree that I overreact, but. He's got American literature anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> Well, as you as you said on an episode of Profiles, my problem is that I read the uh, I read the Aeneid as a failed <laughs> realist novel. I thought you would enjoy that. <laughs> I told my class that when I was uh, going over the Iliad, I'm doing the Iliad in my Western World Masterpieces class uh, this uh-huh. semester, and I told them that you said that about me, and that maybe they shouldn't be listening to me about epic poetry. <laughs> That's awesome. Well. Uh, Michael, I'll let you take us into uh, uh, t- take us beyond the Middle Ages. Now, um, in your well, in, in your post, you mentioned a couple of major uh, major early modern uh, Renaissance uh, allegories. Um, you also mentioned C.S. Lewis, but we're not going to talk about C.S. Lewis. Um, 
who, by the way, in, in terms, I'm just going to toss this out there. Um, we've got inklings on both sides of this particular discussion. We here, sure do. For is, once, I'm with Tolkien. Yes, yes. <laughs> Tolkien, Tolkien disliked allegory in all its forms. I've got oh, to remember funny. to bring that up next time. Next time, my students are upset about my not liking Pilgrim's Progress because if there's one thing they love more than Pilgrim's Progress, it's Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tolkien, Tolkien is in your corner at this point. Lewis is not, but Tolkien is. So, you know, just wanted to toss that out there. Anyway, uh, uh, in your in your uh, post, you cite two major allegorical works, uh, Fairy Queen and The Pilgrim's Progress. So I guess uh, kind of finishing off our history, if you can talk some about our fairy, uh, talk about the Fairy Queen and... Uh, where it fits in the story Nathan's told up to this point and uh, in your, in, in your judgment, what works, what doesn't work? How does the allegory of fairy queen function or dysfunction? Now I have not read the fairy queen since 2006 and it was, it was never something I loved. Uh, so I, I, I took a Spencer class in which we read the entire thing and, and by the end I was ready to be done with it. So I, I don't want to set myself up with what I'm about to say as some sort of expert on Spencer. You guys both understand him better than I do. So I am open to correction here. Um, the fairy queen is an attempt, if you believe what he says to teach the virtues, right? So each, mm -hmm. I think it was going to be 24 books, yeah. which is just Thank God he died uh, before he could write. Uh, yeah, 12 virtues of the soul and 12 <laughs> virtues of the city, as I remember. Right, and he completed six, yes. I think. Yeah, so we've got a quarter of what he intended. And uh, of those, I would say only the first one is a really consistent author-centered allegory the way um, – the way Pilgrim's Progress is. It's the, the story of the Red Cross Knight and his dealings with the virtuous woman Una and the unvirtuous dragon lady. What is her name? Duessa? Duessa. Duessa. Who uh, disguises herself as Fidessa. Yes, yes. And, she, you know, she's crapping out books and setting <laughs> fire. And you, it's, not, it's not too hard to see what all this represents, I'm sure. I'm not. No, she's vomiting out the books, isn't she? She's not crap. Well, no, that's out. the monster error. But oh, that's sorry. That's that, that's details. Keep rolling. Yeah, man. error. Yeah, there, there's a there's another one that's tough to interpret. What does <laughs> what does error represent? Huh. <laughs> My experience reading the Fairy Queen is that as you go through the books, especially once you get to like three, four, and five, Spencer loses control of the narrative a little bit. Um, and it becomes much more interesting because there's all this stuff that you have a vague sense is supposed to represent things. And yet when you try to put the pieces together, it's like a jigsaw puzzle that sat out on the beach for a few years and, and the pieces have kind of expanded and they no longer fit together the way they're supposed to. And to me, that makes book three in particular, the story of Britta Mart, which I think we devoted most of our fairy queen episode to because Carla, who guested on that, that was her yeah, yeah. area of interest too. Um, mm -hmm. but that, that, that book is much more interesting to me specifically because it says things I can't imagine Spencer wanting it to say. And certainly it doesn't say things in the, <laughs> the, the straightforward, boring way that book one of the fairy queen is the, the real shame is that in most British lit survey classes, book one is all you ever read. And so you, you walk away thinking that's what the rest of the poem is like. And in fact, the rest of the poem is 
Uh, depending on your perspective, either artistically inferior or artistically superior to book one. I, I, I don't know. I'm sure there's I'm sure there's people who who like that, that that book better than all the others. I'm not one of them. And and again, specifically that that's because it kind of gets away from them. Uh, as I imagine it would if you tried to write a book of that ambition and magnitude. So I don't mm-hmm. want to make it sound like I think he's a bad writer because of it. In fact, I think the writing is actually better in the later ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you guys disagree? Is, uh, do, do either of you want to stand up for that first book? For yeah, Error I, and I, a, a quick apologia for book one. I Go mean, I, <laughs> I don't think that it's nearly as neat as you make it. And honestly, I think that that's part of the genius of Spencer as an artist. Uh, because you're right. I mean, there is a monster called Error that spews forth pages of prose uh but the fact of the matter is when red cross knight slays error it's only afterwards that he himself falls into error it's only after you think you've defeated error that you fall to error Mm -hmm. and then i mean there's other moments of ambiguity like that i mean i think they are more understated than in the later books i think you're absolutely right about that uh but for instance i mean you know try to make a theological allegory out of the fact that you know the Red Cross Knight, you know, goes into battle against the dragon and only in the midst of the, ba- of the battle with the dragon and only when the dragon knocks him into the water that he rises out as a baptized soul, right? <laughs> this is after he has already visited the, you know, happy salvation tower, and I forget the, the name of it in the epic. Uh, but, you know, it, it's one of those things where I think if you try to make it too neat, uh a jigsaw puzzle to use your metaphor, uh, you find places of slippage. And honestly, I, I, I agree with you, Michael. I mean, that's what makes for the most interesting allegories. Uh, mm-hmm. but I don't think that that means that they're not allegories anymore. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting too, because he's, he's working. Um, it's, it's not just supposed to be an allegory allegory of the, the individual, saved soul on a journey towards holiness. Mm-hmm. But it's also a kind of uh, allegory of church history, and in particular an allegory of England's role in church history. Right. So that at, at, at one point Red Cross Knight, um, you know, it, it forsakes his allegiance to Una and, and takes up the allegiance of Fidesa, you know, which, you know, very, very Henry VIII. Now he's the defender of the faith. Ha 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 ha. Mm-hmm. All right. But then later on learns out that, you know, Fidesa is not who she appeared to be and switches back to Una. So we have, oh, look, it's the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Um, except that that just keeps making things muddy, too, because whenever he encounters the Saracens, is is that an actual Saracen or is that a Spaniard <laughs> or, or yeah. is he a... Is he a vice or? Yeah, <laughs> you know because they're they're all wearing you know is it, all all these characters are wearing like you know like four or five hats and mm-hmm. which hat are they wearing? Are they wearing all of them? <laughs> so you you don't disagree that 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 epic is at its most interesting when it's at its muddiest. Oh sure, I just think the mud goes down further than you're giving it credit. And like I said, it's been a yeah. long time since I read the Fairy Queen, yeah. so maybe I should go back and take another look at it. Well, the, the I think the first book might be the one where I admit 
I've I've heard I've heard your 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 reading of it, Michael. That the first book is the one where he's most in control, and then he just kind of gets looser as he goes. And I I, I would I would confirm that impression. Um, but I feel like maybe that the first book is not quite as in control as the others, and maybe he loosened up because it was just it's just too much. He's trying to ride too many horses at once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it ends up making for some really, really awesome weirdness. Like the guy whose head's on fire and he jumps and he's like, I'm on fire. I'm on fire. Oh, my uncontrollable passions. Or is that book two? I can't remember. That's book two. Yeah. Pyrocles. I, love that guy. I mostly just remember <laughs> the salvage man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, unforgettable. <laughs> Sanford and Son returns. <laughs> well, I mean, our listeners who have not read The Fairy Queen will not know that Spencer uses a purposely antiquated language to make it. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to say why he does that, except that it's the most annoying thing in the history of English literature. Because <laughs> when you have a guy, when you have a guy from 500 years ago writing. 800 years ago you know writing as if he lived 800 years ago it's uh right talk about layers of difficulty Mm -hmm. what we need is a no fear spencer (laughs) (laughs) well the 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 funny thing is that they'll modernize uh they'll regularize the spelling of and sometimes even modernize the language of shakespeare but they won't do it to spencer and i think it's because spencer Spencer's doing it on purpose. No, it's because it's because the only people who read Spencer are graduate students in English. Well, that's true too. Yeah, point taken. <laughs> that's true too. Because I mean, they it's... they they. Well, I, I was going to say they modernize Chaucer, but that's actually a different language, isn't it? I'll be oh, I'll be at one you can kind of yeah. bang your head into until it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> With really, really, really good footnotes. Um, it's kind of like reading a William Morris fantasy novel. I don't know if any of either of you guys have ever taken up those, but it's, you know, here you've got this, you know, kind of late Victorian doing his dead level best to sound like Thomas Mallory. <laughs> it's really irksome. Anyway. Okay. Well, we've, 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 uh, had our foray into the land of the fairy queen and it's, and it's, messy it's messy interestingness um i guess we'll we'll shift to the neat the neat allegory um instead of defending pilgrim's progress nathan mm-hmm. uh i would like to dig into a passage of pilgrim's progress that i think most reflects on its allegorical nature um the interpreter's house mm-hmm. so tell us about the interpreter and is it is 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 this passage helpful in understanding, um, even if not liking, <laughs> Bunyan's project? Well, first of all, in the course of the narrative of Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Christian is led to this house, uh, which is interpreted by a figure called Interpreter, uh, and I can't remember if the definite article ever appears or not, but I always think of him simply as Interpreter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Interpreter shows Christian a series of pictures. Uh, and Christian's response to these pictures is always, what means it? Uh, so, you know, I, I, I couldn't help but think of, you know, sophomore lit survey. <laughs> you know, the, the students come in after reading, you know, uh, Agamemnon by Aeschylus. And, you know, their first question is, what means it? 
and interpreter, unlike Dr. Gilmore, uh, gives him, you know, a fairly neat uh, explanation about how the elements of each picture correspond to certain spiritual realities. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I mean, this episode is, as, as David set up for us, a tutorial in regarding the world and the world of art as textual. Uh, so in other words, you know, the, the dusty room, which badly needs sweeping, is not merely the result of, you know, human dead skin flakes collecting and, you know, the laziness of someone like Dr. Gilmore living there. Uh, but rather it is representative of original sin and of the cleansing of Christ and so on and so forth. Uh, and likewise, you know, a, a picture of two men uh, is not merely a representation of two human bodies with human histories who existed at some point, but rather they figure two ways of relating to God, one sinful and one saintly, so on and so forth. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's it is interesting because I mean, I, I think it partakes in precisely the literary tendencies that Michael doesn't much like, uh, namely the tendency to take elements within a story and say, this is what they must mean, uh, rather than doing something like the fairy queen and saying, this is what you think they might mean, but let's make them a little bit slippery. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael, did you have a chance to look at this passage by chance? No, I didn't. I didn't. I did not. All right. Well, David, what would you add to my reading there? I've, I've, I remember. I, I read. I read Pilgrim's Progress when I was a kid, and yeah, it's been about twenty years since I've read the whole book myself. Right. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I do it in Britlet one as well. Um, but I, I always loved. Um, I loved Interpreter's House because I wanted someone like that. <laughs> you know, um, the, the it, interpreter's house kind of met a need the, the idea that, you know, that there would be someone out there who, who, who knew, who knew the answers and I could go to them and like, okay, so what's that about, you know, an interpreter, this, you know, imagine this kind of nice old guy who sounds like, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, just some some this this nice kindly old guy is going to sit down and 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 explain things, and I love the idea of you know this house full of art or full of dramatized scenes, and each of mm -hmm. them, each of them has a lesson. Later on, it occurred to me, oh wait, that's exactly what Bunyan is doing through the whole book. Oh sure, sure. You know the the book is for that, and. You know, the, I guess this this does segue into um, into a kind of apologia for for Pilgrim's Progress. Um, you you said earlier, Michael, that why 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 even bother writing Pilgrim's Progress instead of just preaching a sermon? Um, part of it is because for me, the the role that this book played in my imagination growing up was not to teach me about the spiritual realities. Or the, the 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 Christian doctrines that that it taught because I already knew about most of them. Um, I you know I was I was the reader who was like, you know, and you know, and this particular picture in the interpreter's house refers to this doctrine, and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that doctrine, all right. And so it wasn't the picture teaching me the doctrine. I already knew the doctrine. 
what Bunyan was doing was giving me a picture for it, which in some ways made it more lively in my imagination than just the raw knowledge. Uh, you know, later on in the story when uh, he gets to uh, the Valley of Death and he, f he faces Apollyon and then he has to go, uh, Pilgrim has to go through this, uh, these these perils. There's a pit on one side, and you know, devil voices speaking from the the burning and all the rest of it. Um, I already knew about the things that that represented. You know, this is this is temptation. This is all of these things. But what Pilgrim's Progress gave me is a way of thinking about what's happening to me in my temptations. That was, in some ways, exciting. I'm in a battle right now, um, but also in some ways clarifying. I could think about that scene and, and realize, you know, right now when I'm feeling this urge to give in to the little voice in my head that says, do that, I'm in that scene in Pilgrim's Progress. This is a moment of high drama, you know, put on your armor, <laughs> you know. So, so in some ways, that's what Pilgrim's Progress allegory was for me. How how uh, old were you when you read that book for the first time, David? Probably eight or nine. And so, I mean, my goodness, you could read that when you were eight or nine. It, um, it was a simplified. It was a simplified language version, but that didn't leave any of the scenes out. Gotcha. Because uh, I mean, maybe the issue here is I came to this book much too late in my life. I don't think I, I encountered it at all until I was in my late twenties and had advanced degrees and and I mean maybe the truth about Pilgrim's Progress is that it works very well as an introduction into the world of interpretation mm -hmm. and and then you know you have fond memories of it, but my guess is when you think of yourself as in temptation, you probably don't tend to continue to think of Pilgrim's Progress or maybe not you do. all the time not 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 all the time, but but sometimes um in per in particular the the miry pit you know there's the uh there's that part where he looks down in the miry pit and and bunyan says and this was the miry pit from which david cried out and i'm like ah because now it's pilgrim's progress connecting me to psalms and then both of those triangulating on my experience and it's talking about david Oh, and and it's talking about <laughs> David. That's me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and, and so to be fair, uh, Michael, I mean, sometimes when I'm about to punch somebody, Athena does restrain my arm. <laughs> Athena has never restrained your arm. <laughs> Ares is your god. <laughs> Inspire us, O oh Muse, to sing of the rage of Gilmore. <laughs> and the, the, the bodies he left rotting on the beach. <laughs> Food for dogs and birds. <laughs> no, so, I mean, I think one thing I said to Charles Hackney in the comments section to that post is that I, 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 can, I can admit and recognize that Pilgrim's Progress has spiritual value and that it, it is, I, I can understand its uses in devotional exercises and things like that. I just don't think it's anything to write home about in terms of its literary value. <laughs> right. And, and I'll admit, Michael, I mean, when I saw you write that, it made me reflect on the fact that I have real problems drawing that line. I, but I mean, that's largely because I'm such a dabbler that I'm not sure when I'm doing literary criticism and when I'm doing social theory and 
when I'm doing theology and when I'm doing philosophy. You guys also <laughs> both study a era of literature where that line is not clearly drawn, whereas oh, absolutely, yeah. In my era, yeah. it certainly is. Right, right. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, studying pre-Oscar Wilde and post-Oscar Wilde are two different ball games. Oh, it's it's weird that Oscar Wilde would be your division line because he has those fairy tales that are clearly devotional exercises. Yeah, yeah. But I guess I was just thinking the whole art for art's sake. Yeah, mm. yeah. But if you believe if you believe Oscar Wilde actually held to that, you know, no, that's, that's what's so interesting about him. But but I think he wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I guess I think people are at their most interesting when they end up doing something they didn't mean to do. Hmm. And and, 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 and I, I just I, I don't I don't see anything in Pilgrim's Progress that Bunyan didn't mean to be exactly the way it is. There's there's nothing mm. that gets away from him. There's I, I think the way I describe it in the post is there's no room for the reader to breathe in it because he's constantly breathing his own breath into your mouth. <laughs> there's an allegorical vision. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Can I divert for a second? Go. Um, because this is this is not necessarily a path that I uh that I traced out for us. But, but as we know, that's of... what I like better anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well that's 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 the direction we're headed. Um and I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch this at you, Michael. Uh because I don't know, and I and I suspect that this this probably has a lot to do with the reasons why we're our takes on this are varied. What happened to allegory and why did it, why did it go away? Why aren't, are, are people still doing allegory literarily or what do you, do you have a sense of how it's fared in, um, in modern and modern lit? My guess is no, I'm not an expert. My guess is if you look, the people who are doing it are writing children's fiction. And even now okay. in children's mm-hmm. fiction, I don't think you're going to see it. But, I mean, we mentioned Oscar Wilde. We've talked about C.S. Lewis. Uh, certainly the Narnia Chronicles are the the biggest example, most public example of allegory from the past 60 years, right? Or that mm-hmm. Hind's Feet in High Places, which is an artistically inferior book to even the worst of the Narnia Chronicles. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ever read that book, Hind's Feet in High Places? My mother read it to me. I, I, she I, I loved I, that book. I, I haven't read that since high school, so I guess I should be careful just, just uh, pronouncing about it. But I remember being so bored by that book. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I, I think Stewart seems to be suggesting that the realist novel replaced allegory. Mm. And, and while she thinks the realist novel is a much more writerly text i i i would say it's just the opposite the realist novel because it seeks to represent real life to varying degrees um and and of course she's using realist very very broadly because she's saying the realist novel starting with samuel richardson Mm -hmm. (laughs) which i you know compared to stephen crane is not a realist but you understand the things that happen are just supposed to be things that happen not reflections of some higher spiritual reality except in the broadest sense the the realist novel i would say because it 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 attempts to reproduce the complexity of real life allows uh allows for more readerly interpretation now what's interesting is is that readerly interpretation might look a bit like dante's 
four levels plus because you can read a great novel for all sorts of stuff. You can read it for moral instruction. And, and I mean, however much people try to keep morality out of literature, it's obviously always there. Is there anybody pre preachier than Stephen Crane? <laughs> you, you, you yeah. know, so yeah. you, you can yeah. read it for moral instruction. You can read it for some sort of metaphysics. And I, I think there's, there's realist novelists who really open themselves up to, to saying philosophical things about the world. You can read it. Um, you can read it for, uh, what it means to be human. You can, you can read it for just the, the beauty of the words. You can read it for the emotions it draws out of you. All those, all those things are present in the, in the realist novel. And, and not to say they're not present in the allegory, but, but I, think, I, I think to use the terms you've already introduced, David, to, to the degree we still have, the allegory is still a popular art form. It's moved from being a way of writing back into a way of reading. Although modern allegorical reading is going to look very different than patristic allegorical reading. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and yeah, I mean, and this is where, you know, I, I tend to agree with you, Michael, but from a different angle, I mean, you know, this is why I think that a sort of new left allegorical way of reading every freaking movie that comes out is tiresome. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, you know, this, this movie is actually just about date rape. This movie is just about, you know, coming out. This movie is just about, you know, bullying. This movie is just about, and I always want to say, can't there be more than that? Right. No, no, no work of art worth its salt is just about anything. Right. Right. And, and so, I mean, really, really, I guess what we need is an entire library written about everything that can be interpreted. And that's what I want. Okay. So, I mean, I, again, my problem may not be with allegory. My my problem may be with a certain form of allegory. Well, that um, that in some sense a a a very highly defined allegory like Pilgrim's Progress is going ahead and doing for you something that you'd rather do yourself. Right. You know, and so I I would like to wander through that book and hang the labels on things. I I, I just assume it not be pre-labeled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that that yeah that that pretty much sums it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, as we as we uh, kind of drift to the end, do we have any kind of final thoughts? Uh, final thoughts about allegory in terms of uh, uh, bo books that reward allegorical ways of reading. Um, recommendations to teachers or students or readers of literature uh, that have, that chime in with things we've been saying? Uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd actually like to start with uh, John Milbank, uh, his, uh, his book, uh, good night, what is the title? Theology and Social Theory. I don't know why <laughs> that drifted from me. Uh, but he makes a case, and I think a pretty compelling case, for the recovery of uh, allegorical scripture reading in a postmodern moment. Uh, and what he says is that allegory uh, has the potential to make a stand against sort of scientific, historical, critical Bible reading. Uh, and what makes allegory a potential source of social revolution, which is one of the things he's very inner theologically, uh, is precisely that there is the possibility for new meaning uh, as opposed to 
the sort of, you know, German university. Uh, I'm trying to think of the uh, fellow's name, Wellhausen style mm-hmm. reading uh, that says, you know, this is the meaning of the text. Now we've settled that. We can move on to other books. Uh, allegory says, no, there might be new meaning that arises at any given moment, and that might be a vehicle for divine grace. And uh, just for an example, you know, I mean, uh, if you read something like the Exodus as allegorical, it opens up possibilities for new ways to exist as a political being uh, that transcend the merely private piety uh, that so often accompanies Bible reading, or that also, also, or I guess that also transcends the merely trying to trying to think of a good way to put this the the ways of being political that are already extant in the world. It opens possibilities for new things. Uh, Mm. So one of the things that, you know, I I would present is that, you know, like so much of what's best about the Middle Ages, allegory is something that stands to be revolutionary in a sort of postmodern, post-Enlightenment moment. Uh, So no particular text, but uh, just a, a reminder that allegory, precisely because it's old, might be really cool as something new. Michael, Mm. what do you got? Um, Yeah, going along with that, the flip side of narrow allegory is narrow literalism. And Mm. and so I hope hope nobody is going to take my attack on allegory as meaning we should revert to some sort of, uh, let's just say it, uh, hyper-Protestant, the meaning of the text is the meaning of the text, um, idea of how to interpret the Bible. In, in, In fact, I'm with Milbank here. A, at least a partial return to an allegorical understanding of many passages of scripture is going to benefit us. Uh, mm-hmm. Really, really what I want is interpretability. Uh, so, yeah. Also, I hope anybody who is a fan of John Bunyan takes my comments in the spirit in which they were intended. Because <laughs> I know he's an important writer to a lot of people, and uh, I feel bad, but I just don't get it. Well, I'd like to... Uh address not um, not scripture, but uh, allegory in literature, especially literary allegories, and talking to um, students who might be, uh, or, or other readers who might be reaching uh, Pilgrim's Progress or the Fairy Queen or the Divine Comedy for the first time. Uh, and here, here is an analogy that I picked up from, oh, I wish I could remember which professor it was at the University of Georgia. He was talking about he was talking about Victorian prose and needing to develop a uh, a kind of readerly breath holding that allowed you to begin this super long paragraph or super long sentence and <laughs> hold your breath the whole time <laughs> in order to get through it and emerge from the other end having understood it. Um, there's something similar to that with allegory. There's a way, there's ways in which um, these kind of early modern allegories don't necessarily suit modern, uh, the, the aesthetics of contemporary readers. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the first to admit that, but if you can get a kind of, I guess, tolerance, uh, an ability to hold your breath, um, 
I think you can get some good out of it, but there is a kind of environment suit <laughs> that you might need to don in order to uh, to appreciate those things. Because if you're encountering Pilgrim's Progress for the first time as it stands in Bunyan's text, not in a paraphrased and beautifully illustrated edition like I did when I was a child, um, it's not the best prose in the world. Uh, you do kind of have to fight your way through it. Um, but, uh, I, I think it, I think it rewards the fight, but you do have to sort of don your early modern environment suit to get at it. Um, and I think in some sense, this episode, uh, listening to this episode might, uh, in some ways function as an environment suit for your brain dealing with allegory. So, well, that's our conversation about allegory. Uh, what are we talking about next week, Michael? We're talking about the classic French children's book, The Little Prince, by Antoine Saint-Exupéry. And I will try to keep my pretentious French pronunciations to a minimum next week, but no guarantees. <laughs> Is it an allegory? Uh, you, I'm sure you could read it that way. There, there, are thing, there are things in it that clearly represent something that's not literally in the text. Well, excellent. Well... Next uh, next week, listeners, we will be uh, hanging out with the Little Prince, and we'll post oh, a and... we'll post a link to a full text version of that on the Facebook site, or one of these guys will, uh, and and so because it because <laughs> it is available online, um, legally or not, I don't know, but it's up there. Awesome. Well, in the meanwhile, if uh, you'd like to send in any any questions or comments or. Uh, you know, tell us that we're crazy for any critique of Pilgrim's Progress whatsoever. I, I think there might be some someone out there like that. Um, send us a message uh, either on you can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can send us email at thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com. You can also post uh, comments on the show notes when they show up on our blog, christianhumanist dot org. But in the meanwhile, I'm. David Grubbs, uh, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore, on behalf of Michael Farmer, wishing you the grandest of weeks. You have been listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Christian Philippic. I'm David Grubbs. And I'll leave you with the words of Luther. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs>